Yeah, I did LSD tons when I was in university. Wow. I did LSD every day for a year. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I had a big coke habit. Wow. And I was coke and LSD? Not in college. Coke had become oh, okay. my drug of choice when I was in my late twenties. Right. And the crazy thing was I, I would be described very much as a functional addict. Right. Because I was working and making people money. I wasn't laying around in the in the gutter. Well I heard that's what LSD essentially is. We can LSD turns your brain on, yeah. and for some people you jump off a bridge, for other people they become highly creative. Or you pitch a no-hitter or something like that. It was invented to cure depression. That's what it, They're it, finally circling back to that. In 1955, when like, it was Microdosing and stuff. Is yeah, they figured if we could stimulate the brain cells to stay awake, and that's what it does. It, it, it's an esterase inhibitor. I mean, I can explain the neurophysiology of it. Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing drug because it, it works on... It's a psychotropic drug, yeah. and it works with your brain's functionality. We can quote you on it's an amazing drug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're here with Bill Prevett, who... A.K.A. Dan's Pop. You may have noticed that we share a name. He's my dad. You might think it's weird that uh, we're having my dad on the podcast. Um, it is, it's not just... My dad's not trying to use his family ties to break into the podcast game. <laughs> the reason, the reason uh, we wanted to have my dad on is uh, Bill Prevett is a uh, Oxford-trained theologian. He currently is a... Um, you're an adjunct professor, correct? No, I'm, I'm a research tutor. A research tutor at the Oxford Center for Mission Studies. In Oxford, England. Uh, he's been a missionary for 30 years, 30-ish years. Mm-hmm. Um, You're probably going to be the, one of the most qualified people we have on the show. <laughs> so I'm going to kind of like... <laughs> this tells me something about the nature uh, yeah. of your show. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so I... I mean, I have like a whole list of things I can just fire off on. Do you just want to give us, anybody listening, like sure. a couple bullet points about who you are? Yeah, first you want to deconstruct theologian. Uh, too many people think that's like a library job. I often speak of theology as how we speak of God, speaking and thinking about God. So everybody who is in any way claims to be a person of faith is a theologian in some degree. So I don't want to be put into some category as a... Oxford trained academic. Right. My main focus is social theology, which is working with how what we refer to as operative theology, how people actually practice what they say they believe. Right. So my core interest is in how people who espouse certain things actually practice them and how that's operative in their lives. So I never, ever, ever thought I would end up in Oxford, England. When Dan was a kid, we went to, I worked in the inner city of Los Angeles with gangbangers and gangs, and then we went to Thailand and spent about eight years in Thailand working with inner city youth and poverty, human trafficking, and uh, then we were in Cambodia in the aftermath of the Khmer Rouge and worked in a very fragmented country for another number of years, and then um, I spent about five years going all over the world and working with at-risk youth and human trafficking, and again, I was not an academic. I, I have a master's degree in international studies, and but I began to see a lot of really what we just say strange and goofy things, what people were doing in the name of God with young people, and that's what got me over to Oxford. I found out about this center in Oxford called the Oxford Center for, quote, mission studies, end quote, and uh, I always explain to North Americans, mission studies in the UK is the study of engagement with society, economics, politics, and uh, very much the British, yeah, as anyone knows, Oxford's had colleges since 1195. Yeah. So I don't know. You'd be surprised how many people don't know <laughs> that. And anyone knows is a little... Okay, uh, well, uh, Oxford's one of these, like Cambridge, is one of these old historical cities where the rich, gen the rich uh, landowners sent their kids to school. But... So Oxford, as you said, Colton's had, quote, theology classics for many, you know, yay, these 800 years. But I didn't go there to get into classic theology. I went in there to look at very carefully 
Um, I did research in Romania, and that's where we lived. Dan was a high school kid. We lived in Romania for five years, and I did research. And again, that was very embedded research and practice on how faith-based groups from the West were responding to the aftermath of the communist regime. Hmm. So I've some, also, of, some of that aftermath being the uh, the crisis with um, orphans, the street kid crisis. Right. What were some of the other things that? Well, the big news was that Nikolai Ceausescu, who was the he had been prime minister, dictator for life, sort of, and he had set up a system where Romanian women were required to have five children by law. Mm. And so basically the state apparatus, the paterfamilias, the state, yeah. basically told women what to do with their bodies. And so women had to have five kids. And what the state said to everyone is you will work in collectives, you will work in factories, you'll work for the state. And oh, by the way, for these extra kids, if you have too many or you can't take care of them, which very few people could, they started to put kids in institutions that were managed and run by the states, and by the state of Romania, and they were very poorly managed. So the crisis was that three or 400,000 kids were put in state-run institutions. Communism blew apart in 1989, 1990. Ceausescu was the only leader in Eastern Europe or in all the, in all the bloc, the Soviet bloc, to be executed. And he and his wife were dragged out on Christmas Day and shot. And, it was, and when we lived there... It they, was, they show the footage every Christmas. They yeah. show the footage every... Like the Hunger every, Games? Every single, every single Christmas, every news outlet shows the footage of Ceausescu being shot. They it love it. May, it may, it may be decreasing balls. now, but th that's how bad the country was. So it was, a, it, it, and I hate to say it, it was a great country to do research on how... Because everybody <laughs> and their brother came into post-communist Romania in 1990. Yeah. Because this hit this the, hit their ways with CBS and NBC and PBS and so everybody was broadcasting this crisis. Well, you guys were too young to remember it, but everybody in the West saw this, and so let's go do something. Let's go help these kids. And my contention was many times Western Christians of a certain kind show up and really get it wrong. Yeah. They uh, they don't take account of local context. They don't take account of local culture and and what all was in that context. And so the, the bad assumption that many, and I come from a more evangelical, charismatic tradition, the bad assumption we made is that we could go in and fix this. But we were poorly, poorly informed, many of us, about the realities of the post-communist world. Thankfully, our family had lived and worked in Cambodia. So that kind of set us up to think a little bit differently about it. Hmm. Well, so, <laughs> so I'm just, I mean, I want to set it up when people, the, the things I always want to de deconstruct when people introduce me, I never introduce myself as a missionary because immediately they got you with a pith, pith helmet on going out whacking people with a Bible. Mm. And I've always been interested in, uh, I, I went to university and I majored in economics, political theory, and chemistry. Mm. And I was an anarchist. <laughs> so that's a bad combination if you're an anarchist. <laughs> uh, yeah, not a, not a Christian at that point when you're, no when you're in college? Okay. A radical anti-Christian. I grew up in an orphanage. Oh, wow. I, saw, I grew up in the segregated South. So I saw a lot of bigotry, a lot of hypocrisy. So I out now, as a 14, 15-year-old kid, just rejected Christianity outright. Yeah. And so I, my journey into faith came much later. I, I became a person of faith when I was about 28 years old. But that's after getting involved with all manner of kind of interesting activities. Right. I was, if you want to ask me questions, you uh, can. I refer to them as interesting activities. Yeah, it's a gentle way of describing it. I came up through the 60s, and a lot of us went for broke. You know, I got involved with. Drugs. I got involved with uh, making money. I lived. In, I met my wife in Alaska. We uh, moved to the West Indies. I built an offshore racing yacht. I got involved with money laundering, racketeering, gun running, and I, you know, I joke yeah, about it. Yacht. Yeah, <laughs> I had, I had, a, yacht was I had a 50-foot yacht. Tell me, funded the building <laughs> of the yacht. Oh my God. I made the uh, made money in Alaska, but my my moral compass was simply just, you know, if you set a, a compass down, it should swing north. Mine went all around the dial. Yeah. And the only thing I was, I was in, I read a lot of Nietzsche when I was in college. So mm. power made sense to me because I saw people who took advantage of other people and they got what they wanted. So mm. I kind of adopted this phrase that said, well, if there is a God, which I seriously doubt, 
then God helps those that helps themselves to all they can get. Right. And I just became a rank hedonist, as many boomers did. Yeah. I mean, you know, we came up through the 60s. We were idealistic about change. Let's fix the society. Didn't work. Yeah. So we joined Microsoft. And I came up through that, but my conversion story was very much, I mean, I had I not come to Christ when I was like 28, I'm pretty sure I'd have got a bullet behind the ear. Hmm. I was dealing with people in suits who, who handle lots and lots and lots of business and money, but, you know, there's a certain line you can't cross with these people. Right. But I can tell flat out, I tell you flat out that I hit a place in life where I was sitting around going, there's got to be more to it than this. Hmm. I had money, I had I had a yacht. I had I had all these things that were supposed to give one satisfaction, yeah. and it wasn't working. And if my wife was here, she'd tell you I was a train wreck of a mm. person. You were married to her at that time? No, we were living together. Okay. We'd been together. We'd be together. We'd break up. We'd be right. together. We'd break up. Was so she a woman of faith at this point? No, we've neither. Kai was raised here in California. She had a very what I would just term a secular background. Okay. No religious, no religious experiences in her background, but she was interested in spiritual things hmm. as a college kid. After she left the West Indies and got away from the lifestyle I was in, she got really involved with the New Age movement in Northern California nice. and lived in a New Age community and practiced mental telepathy and psychic massage. <laughs> psychic <laughs> you know, Kai's, Kai's a bit, my wife's name is Kai, and she's oh. a bit like a... Uh, she was a very free-spirited woman, but... We should do an episode on telepathic massage, or what yeah. you call it? <laughs> Mental telepathy. But Kai, Kai was actually diagnosed at the, at, the, at the middle of her new age kind of lifestyle as paranoid schizophrenic. Hmm. And, you know, people doubt these things, They you know, until they've met a paranoid schizophrenic person. And then they say, well, it's just in the mind. I don't think right. so. I think there's a lot more than the mind going on. That's how Kai came to faith. She came to faith out of an experience where she really was losing her mind. And then I was in the West Indies, and I came to California to get her out of a, what I thought was a cult called the Assemblies of God. <laughs> and, and and that's, where are you a missionary with now? <laughs> I work with the Well, I tell people all the time, you want to name a cult something weird, name yeah. it Assemblies of God. It yeah. sounds like a cult to me. And uh, this was our beginning. I came to get her out of this cult. I had an encounter with God that was very deeply transformative. Growing up as I did with a lot of violence, I got beat up a lot by leaders in churches who were... You mean like verbally? No, you're... I got physically beat oh. up as a kid. I got slapped in the... F I had a house parent, Colton, smack me in the face when I read the book To Kill a Mockingbird. You know this book. Oh, yeah. I read this book when I was 13 or 14, and this guy used the N-word just like anybody of color was an N. Yeah. You know, and I won't use it on yeah. your podcast, but I said, you shouldn't talk to people that way. He literally hit me in the face and knocked me off my feet. I was 13 or 14 years old, and he was a deacon in our church. Wow. So, you know, I say to people, too, that kids are smarter than you think they are. Mm. And I knew right then that, that something was, there was a huge disconnect. Right. How could there be a God? How could these people say there was a Jesus Christ and be total idiots about, you know, color? Yeah. And I was just a 14-year-old. Right. So uh, I came to faith with a lot of bias. I had no trust in Christians. I thought they were all hypocrites. Mm. And it matter, It really didn't matter to me if you were Hindu, Buddhist, whatever. I thought religion was a waste of time. I mean, Mark said, you know, it's an opiate. Yeah. So that was my philosophy. So I came to this church with the idea that I'm going to drag Kai out of this because these are all idiots. She's attending, she'd written me a letter telling me about what she was involved with. And I was skippering a 70-foot yacht out on the East Coast in Martha's Vineyard that belonged to a guy in the Mafia. And <laughs> as one does, yes. as a 27-year-old, yeah. But when I got this letter from her, and she's in Marin County, California, mm -hmm. well, it's full of language that I would joke and say now is Christianese. Yeah. You know, Christians have a whole language they speak that nobody else speaks. Mm -hmm. we, we, we spend an ample amount of time working on deconstructing <laughs> yeah. some of that. But, you're, but you can go into what some oh, of Oh, things so like their letter said, well, the letter started out with, I used to carry it around and show it to people when I was a brand new Christian. It's so funny because it said, praise God, hallelujah. That's the opening line of this letter sent to a guy in the mafia. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'm reading this thinking she's in a cult. Yeah. 
And she went on to say things like, we were in church and we were praying for you. Well, these are all red flags to a bull for yeah. me. And uh, so <laughs> I, uh, I read this letter. Another thing she said, there was a word of knowledge. Whatever oh, that yeah, means. Yeah, getting into the prophetic. Yeah, so she yeah. was into, and she was in one of these churches in Northern California, where uh, a member of the Grateful Dead had been saved in this church. Yeah. This is all ex '60s people, so there's a real interest in the supernatural. Or what, the, what year is this about? About 1981. 81. Okay. And so Kai got drawn into this. So I read the letter. I figure this is a cult because of this language. I mean, people don't talk like this. Yeah. And she had been in a new age cult. Remember this, <laughs> which I had. So you're like, to, she has a track. track she has record. a track record. Yeah. And I went out to get her out of this cult and uh, literally showed up. I used to carry a. Uh, it looks like a pistol grip. It's uh, it's made for hitting people over the back <laughs> of the head if you want to stop stop them moving anywhere. And I carried it in my belt in the back, back behind my, in the small of my back. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> and I was pretty handy at yeah. smacking people around. I mean, that's kind of a big man. Yeah, and I and I um, I came to this church with the idea that I'm going to walk in. I'm going to drag her pastor off the off the platform. I'd grown up with this crap. Yeah, and I was going to drag this guy off the platform and pistol whip him, basically hit him over the head with this thing and turn to the audience. I can't say I've never wanted to do the same thing. <laughs> before. I've never had so much like preparation to do it. Yeah, I was prepared yeah. to hit this guy over the head and turn to the people in the place and say, "Get a life." Yeah. You are wasting your time. This stuff is nothing but a, uh, it's just opium. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's a waste of your lives. Now, I was a very angry man. I, I didn't get, I cursed every other word. I had very little tolerance for anybody. And I came into this building and I had an encounter with God. And it, it to people who hear that language, it is instantly, even just saying it out loud sounds cultic. But I had an encounter with something that was not human. It was that night feeling, I was going to smack this guy in, in, over the head with his pistol. Right. And I, uh, pistol grip. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't move. I felt literally like my arms were held at my sides. And I recognized, and I used to do a lot of weightlifting. I could, I think I could bench about 300 pounds then. And I just, something was gripping me. And uh, to this day, I don't know if it was just raw anger that was mm -hmm. spilling into my bloodstream, but I could not move my arms. I felt restrained. And this guy, who became a great friend of mine, he, he had a PhD as well in uh, philosophy from Berkeley. He came right up to me, looked me in the eyes and said, sorry, you're playing games with God. And this is what I would consider prophetic. When people can look at a person and really know what's going on and not be full of BS. And I swear I would have killed the guy if I could have moved because he was reading my mail in front of people. Hmm. But I couldn't, and he just kind of went away. And this just set in motion in my brain a cascade of, get me out of here. I want nothing to do with this. I went for the exits. And a guy followed me out who had played piano for Van Morrison. And he was a brilliant pianist. He turned out to be a great friend, James. He followed me to my car, and I turned to him and said, if you don't get away from me, I'm going to beat the blankety-blank out of you. Yeah. And he said, God loves you. And I haven't told you all my story because I'd had a yacht sink. I'd met some people in Seattle. I'd met a man in Seattle who was like Dan's size. He was a huge man. He was six foot eight. This was a week before this event. And this man was what I would probably say to anybody was a genuine <laughs> kind of a, a guy who really demonstrated outwardly that he had faith in that I went down to the inner city of Seattle with this great big guy. And he was going to take me to lunch and he stopped his pickup truck in the wino district of the city where the winos are laying in the gutter got out of his pickup truck i did not know this guy's background all i knew is he was one of the, he was a very well-paid contractor and i was running a job with him and he started picking alcoholics up out of the gutter and he's big enough to do it with one hand and i turned to him and said what the hell are you doing and he said god loves these people and I said, you're full of shit. Yeah. <laughs> if God loved these people, they wouldn't be laying in the gutter. And this guy picked me up. I had on a jacket. He lifted me off the ground, smacked me up against his tr pickup truck and said, you don't know God, so don't tell me what God loves. And after the fact, I can tell you that's, that's called righteous indignation, I think. Mm -hmm. 
And that guy was like a, a road stop in my life. But I just argued with the guy all week long. Mm. I told him what an idiot he was. He was not a thinker. He wasn't a reader. He was just a guy full of faith. When you're that big, you don't have to. Yeah, you, you, <laughs> he, had, he had his thing. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't need another thing. Yeah. And in our, in our, we all know that he was a street preacher guy. Yeah. He was a guy that kind of, he ran a huge cement company, and he spent his hours out, and half his crew were uh, Hispanic, and the other half were black. Mm-hmm. And Lee was one of these kind of what I call a roadblock. Every every now and then you need a roadblock. Well, that guy Lee had told me all week long, God loves you, God loves you. I said, you're full of crap. There's no such thing as God. But what I could not get around is this guy had this commitment to these people. Now, see, I grew up in a tradition, the civil rights tradition said we're supposed to care for marginalized people. I never met anybody did it. I heard lots of people mouth it. Mm-hmm. This Lee guy, he was a real deal. So now I'm back to, back to California. I've walked out of that church, and God has this other guy follow me out named James, who's slightly built, very tall, very articulate, and he's talking to me about love. And he said, God loves you. And see, Lee had been saying that to me. And I turned to this guy and said, I'm, I could never have hit Lee. He'd have killed me. Yeah. <laughs> but I turned to this other guy and said, if you don't get away from me, I'm going to beat you up. He says, well, even if you do, I'll still love you because God loves you. And I thought, what an idiot. He came and met me the next morning against my will and wanted to take me to breakfast. And I reluctantly went with him. And we went to breakfast and I heard a senator, I think he was a senator, he was, in, he was, in this, he was serving in the uh, legislature for California, and he was this guy speaking about faith and I stood up and interrupted him and told him what an idiot he was. And so you can imagine how ugly I was. Mm. Well, all that is is bees to honey for people who are interested in sharing their faith. So now I have all, now in this church in California, half these guys are brainiacs from the city of San Francisco and the other half come from Berkeley, right? Right, yeah. And so they're all now got a target, me. And I'm like swatting them off like flies. I get out of the building, leave me alone. I don't want to talk about this. This is a bunch of hooey. And I had booked a plane ticket to return to California the next day. And the next day, I uh, I don't know, you guys know this movie, Forrest Gump, but I think most people... Everybody knows the movie, <laughs> yeah. Forrest Gump. Yeah, everybody's God help us if we start a podcast. Right, so that's how I have people relate to my story, because that story, you know, when you see Forrest Gump and you see Lieutenant Dan and you see what had happened to Dan, he, even though he's in a wheelchair, yeah. he wasn't an idiot. And there's a great scene in the movie, because in the movie, he's on a mast, right? And the, and the hurricane came. yeah. yeah. And he's flacking around and he's screaming at God, you know, oh, yeah. you God, blank, 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 blank. Yeah. And then the next scene in the movie where we see Dan and Forrest of Hurricanes past, and, <laughs> and Forrest, we hear the voice of Forrest saying, I think Lieutenant Dan made his peace with God. Right. And, and, and we see Dan jump over the side. Well, that's where I was that day on Sunday. I went to church. I was angry. I went with Kai just because I, I was determined to tell these people what idiots they were. That's the only reason I went. After the service, I went back to her apartment. I was packing to go to the airport, and I just went out on the porch, and I screamed as loud as I could, just like in that movie. Having never seen that movie, you can't be real. This is all make-believe. And I swore at whatever the sky is and said, uh, if you're really real, show me in a way I'll understand, which is what Lee had said to me and James had said to me. God can communicate to you in a way you will understand it but you have to ask him. And I think that's a lot like AA. (laughs) You hit the wall, you gotta ask for help, right? Yeah. So that's that's my story. When when I did that, I had like uh, a bolt of lightning experience. I mean, I fell to the ground and I wept for about six hours. Wow. And um, so this- Just because it was it was I mean, an, obviously, you start putting language on it and it diminishes yeah. it, but it was just an internal... It was an overwhelming sense of, um, woe is me, hmm. I am undone, for I have encountered the holiness of God. And there wasn't a word, it was just a... a it was nothing shock. other than I fell to the ground and wept and had a sense of who I was as a person. Because I had been a user. I had been. I had used and hurt and abused tons of people. And it was kind of like having your mail read to you. And that's for me, that wasn't comfortable. Yeah. And I felt the, the beautiful thing about my story was I felt remorse. The Christian word is repentance, but I felt deep remorse and I felt genuine love. And I'm not sure I went to a children's home when I was eight years old. I'm not sure I'd felt much love in my life. So I'm putting words on 
after the fact, right. something I experienced firsthand. But everyone who knew me and everyone who's known me since knows that I can say that's my story. I'm sticking to it. Because yeah. from that day on, my life was different. I never went back to the other stuff. I walked away from my yacht. I started my life over then. Yeah. I'm curious about, about your experiences with different cultures, different backgrounds, you've been around the world. Are you always trying to get people back to the Christ language? Are you always trying to mold that narrative with the end point in mind being Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way through to the Father except through him. Is that always your mindset? Are you kind of like, I had this really ambiguous, mysterious experience with a creator, divine thing, so whatever you end up on is fine? Like, where do you, where do you fall on that? That's a great question. I... Um I am always using Leslie Newbigin's phrase, the scandal of the particularity of Christ. It's quite scandalous that mm. there's this idea that God could come in Christ and be the way. So I like Leslie Newbigin's language on that. For me personally, having read my way into this story where I am, the Christ, Jesus Christ, as the Christ in his earthly body and now the Christ of the universe, is for me very much a special thing to claim. But I have, I have friends at Oxford that are Hindu Christians. Hmm. They come from Hindu philosophical backgrounds. They've had some, they've had an encounter with Christ, but in a Hindu framework. Hmm. Yeah. And that's one of the things that most North Americans are just so clueless about. Well, right. And we are quite uh, like against that. <laughs> yeah, well, I think <laughs> that America, nice way. Uh, thankfully, American Christianity is not the center of the story anymore. Now we have the whole thing of Muslim background believers, people who are Muslims who still are, in, in a sense, culturally Muslim. But and, are finding Jesus in dreams. And, 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 and yeah, all, meeting Christ yeah. in these kind of otherworldly ways and trying to unpack that. So I'm, this is the greatest gift of my life is to work in Oxford with scholars from all over the world where, frankly, my North American box is not adequate at all. Do you think that's kind of where the future is going, where we're all going to have like a flavor of this and like, I'm a Hindu Christian or I'm a agnostic Christian or I'm a Buddhist Christian and we're going to like splice our faith systems together? I, I guess it, it almost like, it sounds like what you're saying is the term Christian itself is kind of being um, re-examined and reconstructed. Mm -hmm. Well, Christendom, this thing called Christendom, which is a historical uh you know, it's come to us through the Enlightenment, through the Reformation. That's ending in this century. Hmm. We are moving to a global kind of Christianity. Um, I don't know that it'll be so much of a splicing thing, but it's certainly what's going to have to happen is Africans are going to have to figure out what it means to be an African Christian. Yeah. They're going to have to do self-theologizing. They're going to have to theologize from their own context. Koreans have, have adopted huge amounts of American Christianity, and it's not serving them well. Because in, in, in mission yeah. studies, they're trying to export something they took up from the Americans and took it to Cambodia. Right. So what we're seeing is this, my, my context is where we encourage people to do genuine contextual theology, where you're rooting your studies in, in this person, Christ, in the text, and trying to make sense of it in your context. So they can access, let's face it, the West has produced a lot of literature, from the, from the Orthodox churches, the Catholic churches, the Protestant churches. I think if we stick around for another three or 400 years, that's going to change a lot. Because hmm. the center of Christianity has moved out of the West. I mean, it's not here anymore. Where do you think it is? It's in Africa. It's in the global south. Yeah. It's in Africa, Asia, Latin America. It's moved to the south. It's a global south story now. And those guys are doing theology, theologies in ways we don't. And I've got friends in Oxford who are coming to us from Africa who are doing PhDs, and they just don't work with the categories we work with. Hmm. One guy told me, don't use the word Pentecostal. We're spiritualist. Hmm. Huh. Because in Africa, spiritualism is what you are. So he, right. you know, he's holistic. And he, he grew up, of course, experienced this kind of Pentecostal teaching as a boy, but now he's in his 40s. And he's very interested in Africans. They're called African independent churches. So they don't identify with denominations. But that's the big story in, in, in when you do the kind of research I'm doing. The center of Christianity was North America and Europe for many centuries. And now that has shifted to the South, meaning China. We, we say global South, meaning the non-West. Right. What do you think caused that? I mean, do you think it's our 
our language is limiting our understanding and they're more open to it because they're calling themselves spiritualists the way they understand their bodies and minds are what can you pinpoint anything I'm not well sure look, like, look at population numbers look at the growth of the numbers of people outside the west you know africa's basically 70 percent under 18 years of age it's younger wow but the openness that say africans and asians have to the spirit world is much more like what happened in the first century hmm. when the christian gospel got going it was slaves, it was marginalized people, and it was a very mysterious world, right? Right. And rationalism came along, and the Western project has been, no, it's all about material things and secular things, and that project is failing. Hmm. Smell the coffee. Western secularism is breaking down. I mean, I'm shocked Britain just left the Union. Sorry, side note, uh, we actually recorded this episode a year ago, which is why he just referenced the Brexit. We kind of sat on it for a while because we had like four white dudes in a row and we're like, hey, maybe we should mix it up before we launch this. And then before you know it, a uh, year has passed. So uh, that's what's up. I, I got up this morning, watched the news shows at 7 a.m. The Western Project is breaking down. This is very big news that Britain has left the Union because Europe, if Europe disintegrates as it could, it's only a sign of what any study, any, if you do any research on empire building, Western thinking relies on categories of thought that are limited. Wow. And that's, that's a major change. I mean, now this is, Oxford has done this to me. I'm with people that don't think in terms of the next 20 years. They think in terms of the next 100 years. Go to China. China doesn't plan anything for the next 20 years. It's always about 100-year plans. So the Asian mind is different. That frightens me because if we're so momentary. And I and part of what I enjoy about mysticism is the, a, a focus on the moment, living in the present moment, not projecting so far into the future. But then what you're saying freaks me out. But think, because, of, think of the Aborigines, yeah. who were very much moment people. I mean, we're talking Australian Aborigines. They encountered the, the mysterium in the fire. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But they never saw their universe as a 10-year universe. They were part of a grand story. Yeah, deep time is what Richard Rohr calls it. Yeah, so uh -huh. deep time for an Australian Aborigine, it, it's deep time in the past and it's deep time in the future. Right. So that, that's why I think I've heard you guys talk in the podcast. Rohr is tapping a nerve here in Western Americans who are starting to wake up to maybe the universe is not as simple as we thought it was. Multiverses, quantum physics. I mean, right. I get to hang out with quantum physicists who are Christians in Oxford, and yeah. they'll bend your noodle. I mean, <laughs> I mean your head will get bent. My noodle, man. <laughs> You'll get talking to these guys, but they're, one of my friends just laughs at Richard Dawkins, who's this you know geneticist oh, yeah. and kind of a, a very, very heavy-duty atheist. Yeah. But Dawkins' whole critique of Christianity and religion is he claims that there's a material world. And my friend, who's a philosopher physicist, says it's silly. Yeah. Because no quantum physicist believes the world's material. It's harmonics. Okay. Confession. There's a few times in this episode where Bill drops some knowledge and I just nod like I know exactly what he's talking about, but I'm way out of my depth. This is one of those instances. Harmonics. An immaterial universe. String theory. These are things I barely know anything about, and most of what I know is an amalgamation of lectures from Science Mike of the Liturgist podcast, Michio Kaku, and Neil deGrasse Tyson. Cutting-edge science is all incredibly fascinating and complex, but the struggle for me at least is to bridge the gap between mind-bending theories and meaningful spiritual truth. But I'll do my best in this short break to share what I've learned and hopefully not overwhelm you, and simply stir up a new way of embracing the divine mystery and all those who seek to understand it, no matter what their scientific field or religious background is. Alright, fun fact. The Earth, the Sun, the stars, and everything we can see only comprise about 5% of the universe. 27% of the universe is comprised of what's known as dark matter, and the other 68% is made up of dark energy, both of which do not reflect or emit light, but rather pull things together through gravity. So, dark matter and dark energy make up 95% of the universe, making them the building blocks of the universe instead of atoms, which up until 30 years ago were believed to be the elemental cornerstones of all creation. The interesting thing about dark matter and dark energy is that we can only be sure they exist because of their effect on what we can see. They bend light, accelerate the rotation of the universe, and even force other matter to break apart. So to recap, 
Scientists are convinced of something they cannot see because they can infer its existence based on the gravitational pull it has on the universe. I feel like that lends itself to some pretty epic spiritual metaphors, but I'll let you do that. If this is way over your head, don't worry. It's taken me listening to many lectures over and over again to basically understand the fact that scientists know there's something out there driving the universe that they can't fully understand, test, or confirm yet. And as a theologian, that's a space I feel pretty comfortable in. Michio Kaku, a world-famous physicist just a notch below the popularity of Neil deGrasse Tyson, has committed his life's work to developing what's known as string theory, or the universal theory, or the theory of everything, which is also the name of a film where Eddie Redmayne steals an Oscar for Best Actor from Michael Keaton, who crushed it in Birdman. Not that I'm still upset about that. Anyway, Michio Kaku and fellow physicists believe that the universe is made up of vibrating strings that create a sort of cosmic soundtrack coursing throughout 11 different dimensions in hyperspace. Now, if that made any sense to you, you're a sick, sick person for wasting your time on this podcast when you should be doing some groundbreaking math with your fellow nerd geniuses, okay, Goodwill Hunting? For the rest of us who are just casually curious about the greatest mysteries of time and space, the big thing to take away is that both scientists and theologians are searching for purpose, meaning, and the origin of consciousness, and every time they do, they seem to come up with theories that connect all of us through an immaterial, immeasurable substance. Whether it's an omnipresent personal deity or a mathematic equation that unites all creation, we're all searching for answers that we'll most likely never discover with our limited brains and short lifespan. Which is why we need older, wiser people like Dr. Prevett to show us how to take pragmatic, sustainable steps toward cultivating a generative spiritual life and how to embrace the mysteries beyond our comprehension. Because at the end of the day, the only thing we have a chance of understanding and improving is ourselves. And that's hard enough. Anyway, back to Big Papa Prevet. I just keep thinking, like, God, I was raised by this. Like, <laughs> I remember one time um, coming home from school and you being like, how was school? And I was like, it's, it's fine. I'm 14. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> and you said, well, we don't have to talk about it. Do you want to talk about what shape the universe is? <laughs> and, what? And I said, yeah, school's uh, fine. I'm struggling let's with go back geometry a little bit. <laughs> I'm wondering, for someone that has had so much experience around intellectuals, your, your story is highly experiential. Right. I'm wondering, how do you, how do you find that balance in your life as someone who's is like, a, you know, professional studier of the word and how to live it out lots of theory um how do you maintain that balance of a of a life and a perspective of god that is rooted in this crazy mysterious experience you're constantly trying to put language and concepts around it how do you keep it in your head but yet have that heart soul i, I, I would say that my first two years in my christian experience were i was remarkably blessed in the sense the first book i read was mere christianity mm. It's on the shelf. And so many people, I would ask everyone, what are you supposed to read? Now, see, I loved reading, and I was reading since I was a kid. And that's probably what kept me out of prison, is I read a lot of books. And so I just asked people what to read, and thank God I met good readers. I met people who said, read this, read this. And I, I don't see this bifurcation like a lot of people do. I think that the Mysterium Tremendium, that which is not us, can be very much us. We are not bipartite beings. We are whole beings. Mm -hmm. So early on, I began to get onto this language of holistic and integral, and that faith is some, it, it's, it's Anselm said, faith seeks understanding. And, I, and, I, and so all of us are trying to make sense of, humans are human, they're meaning-making machines. So as a young Christian, I would read, I didn't read heavyweight theology, but I read a lot of things that helped me, Francis Schaeffer. I read things that started me getting grounded. Okay, so what do you think about this stuff? How do we make sense of it? I really wanted to understand things about the resurrection, so I read history, Christian history. Mm -hmm. But what I experienced was my warmth and experience in Christ was very real. I had a real emotive experience, but I love to think and I love to read. And and I think what does happen to us is it's a bit like being on a seesaw. Mm -hmm. There are periods that we read and we think and we get deeply intellectual. And there's other periods where God comes along and presses us into a more different space. Right. Where we're brought in more to our souls of self, of feelings. 
And uh, if you're healthy, your seesaw goes up and down. You shouldn't, it, it's a bit like letting the spirit keep that thing balanced. Right. The seesaw will get down here and you'll start bouncing on the ground of hardcore intellectualism. Yeah. And something will happen on the other side. In my case, my son was not doing the best. My wife was what, not doing Dan? the best. <laughs> I struggled a bit. <laughs> and I had to come back to, wait a minute, there's this whole side of this thing called faith, which is because my wife and son are very feeling. I'm, I live in my head. Yeah. But my, my family is a, is a family that reads the world as an emotional piece of work. So I've, that's, I, that, I guess, one of the things that's unique in my story is that God put me in a, in a family and in a church tradition, which wrestles with this a great deal. Because I'm an intellectual Pentecostal, but I'm uncomfortable Paradox. with... Paradox. Yeah, mm -hmm. but I'm uncomfortable with too much categorization on either one of those. Right. Because I'm just basically trying to figure out how to live my life and be honest. Mm -hmm. And the older I get, the challenge I see before me is, can I be honest to the, any of the stuff I say I believe in? Yeah. And how do I live with any kind of authenticity and, you know, I can pontificate all kinds of things that I know. Right. But what you would probably know the name Poyani. I mean, you know, the idea is there's more. We can always, we know more than we can say. Right. And I think that the spirit dimension of what we know is, is deep, deep, deeply profound. Right. And that's, uh, when we start talking about things like knowing, epistemology, well, the Bible's got this great phrase, you know, the Spirit of God knows the Spirit of God. It also knows the Spirit of man. So how does big S spirit and little spirit, my spirit, how does it work together? Yeah. Anybody tells you they got that figured out is pulling your leg. Right. Too much certainty <laughs> is always a scary thing. Yeah. When I come home and I get Americans say, oh, well, Europe's being taken over by Muslims. I say, you know, would you stop listening to Fox News <laughs> for five minutes? It's not true. Yeah. I mean, I know Muslims who absolutely have the same goals in mind we do. They want to see a world that's a better world to live in for their kids. Right. And so faith traditions are, they are basically rooted on this idea of hope. Now, I claim that my tradition is Christian. But I don't think my tradition trumps other traditions. Right. Hmm. And so interfaith dialogue is different. That's is, pretty, that's a hefty statement. I but it, but it, it's, it's where I get to be, if Christ is sitting at the table with me and a Hindu and a Muslim and a Buddhist. Right. I'm not seeing Jesus saying, well, boys, I've got the way. Just get in here and follow me. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing Jesus as a person who would become very familiar with the Hindu tradition. Right. Very familiar with the Buddhist tradition. And... You know good and well, most Westerners haven't done that heavy lifting. Yeah, yeah we don't I, need to. I lived in Thailand. I had to learn their language. The longer I lived there, the longer yeah. I understood Buddhism. I say that was the best thing that could have happened to me as a Christian because I saw how narrow-minded my thinking was. I would just want everyone who's kind of doing this journey, you, you're a theme of the back pew, people looking at it, at least be honest with what you're thinking about. Don't make this up as you go. Uh, there's a lot of people who just do it on the fly. And um, I know a lot of people leading churches that don't study. They don't read. They don't think. And then they get up every week and they work out of, like Haddon said to me, you say the most extraordinary things. Well, I'm working from kind of what we call folk knowledge. Mm. Oh, man, yeah. And there's uh, wow. there, there yeah. were multiple times as a kid where, like, my I would just watch my missionary father... <laughs> Just quietly stand up in the middle of a church and just like, I'm going to stretch my legs, walk out, and never come back. <laughs> well, I have to admit that some people say some of the most extraordinary things, and it's it's and they're speaking of God. I what, what I my experience with that is kind of like an addiction to inspiration. Mm -hmm. Like I want to come on Sunday, get a big emotional boost, but there's not much like tacit knowledge. There's not much like of a tangible practice where I leave and go. Dude, I just go, oh, I never thought about it that way. And then I go home feeling like, hi, but then it, the week starts and I don't do anything. Yeah. Well, the um, application is huge, isn't it? Right. How, how do you apply whatever you're thinking about? And that's where I think there's people applying Christ's love who don't use Christ's language. And I'm like, I think they're actually ahead of the game, even though they don't have the knowledge or the, the book learning that you get in like a seminary or in Oxford. But 
I don't know. That's just something I'm trying to work out. Well, you, you, ask a, you ask a PhD level question. Why did it get to be that the West has lost what it's lost? And I think a lot of it is rooted in intellectualism, rationalism. We've rationalized something that is not completely rational. There's a bit of this faith story that doesn't fit the rational boxes. And, the, and so the traditions, like the Reformed tradition, that pushed it so far into this, well, you just need these rational boxes. Mm -hmm. And that breaks down. Because the world as we know it, and if we're truthful in it, it's not just completely rational. Yeah. Babies get bad chromosomes. There are tsunamis. There's things that are not rational. So Western Christianity reached its you know, kind of height as the, as the empire was built, the British Empire, the American Empire. We're ending that era now. You know, that you guys, I'll die, you'll live through the end of the American era. If you, Certainly your children will. Yeah. The theology. I believe it's coming faster than we all thought. We, we thought we had some time to adjust, yeah. but I, tell be you. I believe the time is nigh. <laughs> and I think that's so. The, what I, so I'm not unhelpful. I'm not unhopeful. I always ask audiences when I speak. I kind of you got to warm up an audience and you tell them a little story. I always say, okay, so who who here is optimistic about the next 25 years? And if it's in a white, you know, typical Anglo audience in North America, nobody raises their hands. They're all pessimistic <laughs> about the future, you know. The the, the somebody's going to take over a country. Yeah. You ask an African or Latin American or that kind of because faith is very real to them. Brother, we believe, you know. So their mm -hmm. hands all go up. They're optimistic. What are they optimistic about? The gospel. All right. But it's not this far away kind of thing. I mean, you know, these communities are living with an encounter that's actually making a difference for them and their kids. Yeah. So that's Western Christianity's got a, I think part of um, our charismatic kind of West Coastness, you know, the um, <laughs> good friends of Bill Johnson up in uh, Bethel. Bethel is like roaring all over America. That's getting a lot of people driving up from LA. Well, a lot of people are hooked on this kind of what they call New Apostolic Reformation. They got the rock churches here, but guys like me will say it's not new, it's not apostolic, and it's not a reformation. What is it? It's, it's an interest in things that uh, you're looking for the, the same thing the church has always looked for, a genuine encounter. Hmm. But you're boxing it and packaging it in a liturgy of your making, which is quite, I mean, I, I don't want to diss Hillsongs, yeah. but Hillsongs is exported all over the world. Frankly, it's like taking in pop music to, you know, the Maasai tribals. Right. Mm -hmm. um, there's something really wrong with that. So what what are, what are your thoughts on that kind of like every Sunday we're going to craft our liturgy in a way that you have this profound spiritual experience every Sunday? Because the mystics seem to say like you get one or two of those in a lifetime. Yeah. But then the the Bethels kind of go, you can get this all the time, brother. Yeah, it's worship of worship. It's worship of it's worship of. Um uh, it's scary. I mean, I do know these guys. They're yeah. friends. I'm not speaking as an outsider to it. It can become, we start worshiping the the experience. Mm -hmm. We start making the experience the thing. Christ is always the thing. Yeah. It's always Christology. Who is Christ? Where is Christ? How is Christ being lifted up in this? And I mean, you know, so everybody's got, well, we're lifting him up in worship. But when, again, I, I just, because I'm an operative practitioner, let me go home and see how this works in your life. <laughs> Let me yeah. see when you walk past the guys that are, you know, you know, hungry on the streets. You know, how, show me your lifestyle. Show me the furniture in your house. Show me your bank statement. Show me all these things. Mm -hmm. Because if all this stuff is making you such a rocket hot Christian, let's see it. Because yeah. I got friends in Africa that are living a lifestyle, and they don't have any of this kind of what I call uh, airy fairy stuff. The yeah. foam on the foam on the uh, the, the coffee. Right. But when I go to their homes and I sit in their village churches, I sense something that's very genuine. Right. See, but that's what I struggle. I struggle with that because I talk to the people who go to Bethel and have these experiences and I sense them. I, I sense them to be very genuine. Yeah. And they'll tell me the, the, the prophecies or the things that will come true. Pray for a new house. Pray for healing. There's just boatloads of stories. I mean, like every single sermon I listen to from Bethel, you like well, they'll start with like a praise report and here's what happened, these crazy mm -hmm, things. And mm -hmm, I'm like, mm -hmm. man, my life is not like that. Do I not trust? And then it's hard because I don't want to be cynical. I don't want to be critical of what these people seem to be experiencing that's bringing great, extraordinary healing. I've seen people turn their life around from these Bethel kind of churches. And if you'd walked into my church, Colton, in 1982, you'd have seen the same thing. Right. And then eight years later, it was fragmented. It had turned into hero worship. 
I have phrases that I use all the time, and I got these from a very senior missionary when I was a kid, and he, it, I've never forgotten them. Focus on heroes, faulty vision, frequent murmurings, flagrant violations of the truth, whatever's going on, and a renewal. Uh, read J. Edwin Orr. He has these wonderful analogies. What's going on at Bethel could be a revival. Mm-hmm. But whenever a revival blows through a community, and this let's go back to the Great Awakening, or used to talk about when a northeaster comes down the coast of Maine, everybody puts their shutters up, right? Those big wooden shutters, and they bolt their windows closed, and they bolt the windows to keep the wind out. But when the wind comes and it's a nor'easter, it's going to blow. It's the perfect storm. Mm-hmm. 80, 90 knots, it blows those shutters open, and many go cartwheeling across the grounds, and you'll see all kinds of strange phenomenon. What we're seeing is phenomenology. There's a lot of, you're, you're describing phenomenon. I got healed. I got a car. I got a job. So what? That's not the substance of the universe. That's not the substance of who God and Christ is. He, he was crucified. He said, follow me on the way to the cross. You want to know the kingdom? Deny yourself. And so the, I have no problem with people cartwheeling across the grounds, but I'm not interested in cartwheels. I'm interested in what's there after the storm's gone through. Because when revival comes, typically, what follows revival? Persecution? Shaking. Something that sorts it out. What really happened here? All of that phenomenology that we're describing in these kind of recent revivals, is that stuff sustainable? See, these are the words I want to talk about. How is it sustainable? How does it keep its life underneath it if it's sustainable? So, yes, pray for the sick. Pray for healing, pray for wellness, but keep it sustainable. Hmm. So, I mean, what you're, I think what we all, those of us that are studying revival worldwide, Bethel would be like a little flame, a little, a little one. There's some massive revival happening in places in Africa, Nigeria. Mm-hmm. You think Bethel's strange? <laughs> There's guys in Nigeria whose congregations are 20, 30,000 people, and they're flying jet planes. Hmm. That's not sustainable either. Hmm. But at the same time, Thousands and thousands of people are finding faith. Yungi Cho, when the Korean revival hit. And so, what, what all of us have, I'm 60, you guys are not 30 yet. Yeah. You just look at it historically. I'm not against revival. I'm not against awakening. But I'm, I'm always looking and saying, so what's sustainable? Mm-hmm. What's going to remain? And when I was in my, I think when he was a kid, I had all these aspirations to go out and change the world. Now, if I'm honest, I'd say one of the biggest things I've changed is me. It's this, this grappling with this inner life. Right. And you guys are drawn to roar for one reason. Guys like me are drawn into the roar dynamic, the inner voice dynamic, because we're real concerned about interiority. The main thing I have to give to anyone, whether it's at Oxford or out in you know, California, is, is my interior, is my soul you know, honest enough to be honest with people? Mm-hmm. Because they will read that. They will know if I care about them. They will know if I'm honest with them. It's mm, a good word. In the glory days of the late 90s, arguably when the American evangelical missionary empire was at its zenith, Bill Prevett had developed a bit of a reputation for himself. He was a freight train of unwavering work ethic and a powerhouse personality that got jobs done. He was a commanding presence and a headstrong leader. At home, he was prone to anger and frustration, and having never had a dad himself, he didn't quite know what to do with a doughy, emotionally needy boy who seemed prone to keep eating all the food in his fridge. For years, I felt my father and I had nothing in common, and often, I wasn't sure if he liked me at all. Cambodia was the hardest place my family ever lived. It was savagely war-torn and crippled by the most brutal communist regime in the region, the Khmer Rouge. There were more landmines than people, and before I was nine, I could identify AK-47s and RPGs. When we first moved to America, I remember being most surprised by how almost every single person I saw had both their arms and legs. Bill Prevett was summoned to Cambodia to act as a sort of faith-based strongman. The mission wanted to build the country's first Bible school, and church factions in the north and south of the country had reached a stalemate as to how Cambodia should be treated as a mission field. My dad was basically Pontius Pilate, tasked with quelling the dissension and getting the school built. When he says he believes it was his God-given task to save Cambodia, he literally believed that was his role. It was a sweltering July afternoon in 1997 when I sat at home with my mom, dad, 
and several fellow missionary friends. Suddenly, without warning, distant, ominous pounding started inching closer in sound and reverberation. I had never heard this sound before. My dogs, DJ and Chewy, started howling and moaning like they were listening to an out-of-tune piano. The booms got close enough to begin shaking the house, rattling dust off the walls and the ceiling fans. Another associate of ours came through the door, and I starkly remember having never seen an adult look so terrified. Tanks. There's tanks in the streets. My dad threw me under the kitchen table while dust kept floating down around us. Why are the dogs scared, I said. Those are mortars, my dad responded, without looking at me. We can only hear them when they explode, but the dogs can hear them whistling before they hit the ground. I was seven. We were under house arrest for five days. The U.S. Embassy informed us that we were to wait at home until they were ready for us to be evacuated. The government had collapsed and a military coup had broken out. Every American, Australian, Kiwi, and Brit was being evacuated out of the country. There was nothing we could do but wait. A gaggle of missionaries and their kids stayed at our house with us. There was little we could do but watch taped cassettes of home improvement in between power outages. The shelling started every morning and paused every night. My parents were careful not to share many details with me, but Dad would leave the house every day to go check on other families and Khmer Christians. I didn't know what was happening outside, but I caught sections of adult conversations I wasn't supposed to. There's a tank battle by the Johnsons. I can't get to Cindy's. There's a checkpoint. The house at the end of the block got hit by a rocket. Each day he came back a little more shaken, a little less himself. After what felt like an eternity in seven-year-old days, we got the call. We met at an established checkpoint for American civilians, and under the cover of bald, tattooed men with black jumpsuits, assault weapons, and no name insignia, we took an armored bus to the airport. It was the first time I had seen the city. Some of it was still in flames or cinders, and most of it was rubble. Buildings were blown open and looted. Pickups with machine guns and teenagers roamed the streets. The airport itself was little more than a pockmarked jetway. We waited on the tarmac to be loaded onto our plane, separated by panicked local civilians by a chain-link fence and armed guards. It was in this tenuous moment, so close to getting out, that Dad got a phone call. Bill, has your family gotten on the plane? No, not yet. Why? Bill, we've come here Christians that aren't going to be able to leave, and a Bible school you just finished building. Someone has to stay. Well... I sure hope you find somebody, because I'm getting on this plane. Bill, it's got to be you. We need you to stay. Mom and I boarded our flight to Bangkok, Thailand, and Dad stayed behind with the armed men, the Kalashnikov kids, and the rubble. I asked my dad years later what that was like. How did you feel watching your family get on a plane and then driving back through the smoldering capital? He said that as soon as he got home and realized he was alone in this house and in this country, he wept. He wept with the weight of knowing that all his efforts, his hours of work, his striving to save the people of Cambodia, and his ardent belief that he actually could, might all be for nothing. He wept under the weight of being completely out of control. He would say that is precisely the place that God meets you. Every story my father tells about a significant experience with something beyond his understanding that leads to growth began with a breaking down. It's only in a shattering of self-confidence, a deep experience of loss, or a brush with sickness and death that my father has ever been able to take a step deeper into his faith with God. It's not a faith derived from dogma or religious convention. It's a belief forged by trial and struggle and giving oneself over to a higher power when yours has run out. It's the only kind of faith worth investing in. As I've gotten older, I've grown to appreciate my dad's ability to learn from his own shortcomings. And it's been comforting to learn that my father and I may have more in common than I once assumed. What is something that you have learned, experienced, or have been taught um, that you would like to communicate about God or faith? Something you wish uh, or would like people to know? I think the most important thing I learned as a brand new young Christian is still one of the things that's really critical. I've, I've mentioned this to both of you. I think you need mentors. You need people who get you, who understand you, who will talk to you about you and listen to you. And uh, I was fortunate to get some of that. But anybody going in or out the door, before you go, either way, 
stop for a minute and just pray real seriously if you're willing to pray this. Just pray that God brings people into your life who get you and understand you and can help mentor what's going on in you. Because in you is a vocation. It was designed by God. Whether you believe it or not, there's a, there's a vocati, there's a calling. Your, your, your genetic DNA contains it. And society has tried to shape you into everything it wants you to be, as has church. It's pushed you, it's shaped you. But if, if we could help you, those of us that want to be mentors, we would help you listen to the voice of your vocation, your inner voice. Because your inner voice is your voice. It's, and if we can help you spiritually, it's to listen to that. Mm-hmm. And you need that. And so, if I mean, if I'm talking, if that's when I was starting out, I did meet a couple people like that. I'm so grateful. I would now ask them even more pointed questions about how do I discover. I became a missionary, I think, a little bit out of guilt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, my background. I wish I had asked my first real mentor, help me discover what my, my vocation in my soul is. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that language then. But that's what I would say to somebody at the back pew is that, so let's talk. Let's yeah. talk about your soul a little bit. Um, ah, it's good stuff. It's good. Just one final question. Uh, can I borrow like $25? <laughs> <laughs> Just like a little bit. Just a little taste. Just for some food. <laughs> sure. I'll pay you back. You can have whatever <laughs> I have, whatever oh, I have is yours. Man. Uh, Bill Prevet. Thanks, Dad. Thank wow, you. Wow, that was amazing. Thank you for all of the wisdom and taking the time to talk to two young, uh, aspiring Aspiring who knows what. (laughs) Aspiring, I don't know what I do. You must understand that I'm inspired by you, and that's not just condescending talk. I'm very inspired by anyone who says, I want to try to think about what it means to follow faith. That's inspirational. Thanks, Dad. This is is like our version of catch. (laughs) (laughs) Catch. Long, long theological discussions. Well, thank you. Yeah. All right. right. Thanks for listening, folks. See you guys next time.